0: giant robots smashing into other giant robots.
1: This is the Giant Robots Smashing Into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with me today is Guillaume Candle, the founder of Zadash and the Attention Exchange, which is working to build a safe place for advertisers, publishers, and consumers to all benefit from fair access to human attention. Guillaume, thank you for joining me.
0: Thank you so much for having me. It's a real privilege.
1: If I'm not mistaken, you and I first met in person for lunch one time in London when I was visiting London in, I think it was, I went back and looked at my calendar. It was March 10th, 2020, if I'm not mistaken. Either that, it was that Friday of that week.
0: It must have been one of the last weeks pre.
1: It was. I literally woke up on Saturday morning for my flight to come back to the US to the headlines that all flights from Europe were being shut down. <laughs> and I almost dropped my phone until I realized, oh, that's the headline, but the the real detail is I can I can get back. It's all the rest of Europe, not UK yet. That was the following week. Uh, I made it home, and then the world changed.
0: It sure did, didn't it? Uh, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it? Because the sort of two-year period in between seems to have flown by. Yeah, it feels like just yesterday, I remember, I think even what
1: I ate. <laughs> <laughs> and... At the time, you were working on a new application and we were talking about that. But I want to fast forward a little bit to today. <laughs> Tell me more about attention exchange and then we're going to rewind a bit to how you've arrived.
0: So, the attention exchange, by way of background, I come from the fintech space rather than ad tech. And it really ultimately, the attention exchange is a, is a matching engine using. Financial terms that matches the right video content to the right consumer based on their spending data rather than their browsing data. So it's a matching engine, and it looks at rules that ultimately we're able to derive. Or actually, better use a phrase: we can bridge the gap between attention and intention based on our audience's spending patterns. Mm -hmm. And the reason we can access those is because they give us explicit permission. We have something called open banking here in the UK. It's actually across most of Europe now, but it enables the consumer to own their data and share it outside the bank if they so wish to with other regulated third parties. So we're such a regulated third party and they share that data with us, as I said, to be matched with video content from brands that are relevant to their spending instead of their browsing. What it ultimately means is we're very well positioned in this apparent post-cookie world that seems to be heading our way eventually, because we don't rely on any other tracking technology to spy on our audience, they voluntarily give it to us. And I guess the kicker, which is people are probably asking themselves, why would they do that? Mm -hmm. That's because they get paid. So we put cash directly into the bank account, or one of the bank accounts they've connected to our platform, uh, in exchange for their immutably valuable attention to that content.
1: So correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like open banking has had a significant impact not only on the data sharing that you're describing, but just on the banking ecosystem in general in the United Kingdom and now
0: Europe? So I think if you were to speak to the purveyors of open banking, it hasn't had as big an impact as they felt it would have. Mm. I think we reached earlier this year I need to fact check this, but about six million people in the UK now utilize open banking in one form or another. But I think what was very interesting is that the ecosystem that sprung up around it was mostly around changing the user experience for the end consumer to have a better handle on their financial health, which is a really important topic. And the reason that is, is that before it wasn't really in the bank's interests to tell you if you're about to hit your overdraft or go over your overdraft because they charge you an extra £20 for, you know, uh, an unplanned uh, loan, and then you'd have to pay it. Mm-hmm. Your your balances is going back a little while showing my age, but it was always two or three days out of out of date, which was weird. Right. So open banking, the first thing that sort of sprung up around it is, well, connect your bank accounts. We'll give you this holistic view of you know your mortgages, your, your credit, your debit, your net worth, really across various assets. And we've moved progressively towards more of an open finance rather than just open banking. You can sort of connect by APIs, a lot of your financial identity to these open banking providers. But having said that, no one has looked at it in the way that we have, which is actually this is an advertising play. And it could be potentially a, a real change maker in the way that consumers benefit from this $400 billion industry, which is advertising rather than all the fintech stuff that's been happening around open banking. But yes, so it's not to sniff at, you know, several million people using open banking, but most people I don't even think realize they're using open banking. You are mm-hmm. in the Revolut app and it says, do you want to see your Monzo, your Monzo balance inside our app? You say, well, yeah, okay. That means I don't have to open Monzo. And lo and behold, you share that data.
1: Right. I guess, yeah, that's really good perspective. I, I think from my perspective, I, I was thinking... It sort of made it, there's a separation between the banking backends and the user experience that uh, so, and I think that in part that has given rise to these challenger banks and made it more possible for them to do that.
0: Yeah, I, it, that's a very fair point. I think certainly, if nothing else, it certainly forced the incumbent players, mm-hmm. those have been around for a few hundred years, to really buckle up their ideas and think about how to react to this new threat at first. Geez, you know, open banking is going to cause us all sorts of problems. But I think as it's sort of gone full circle, you find that actually most people are looking for that user experience and the banks have been forced to provide it within their existing ecosystem. Mm -hmm. So now most banking apps provide really super UI uh, or UX, meaning that you don't have to go use third party tools to get such a such lens. And in fact, the, the, the most interesting one I've seen of late, um, which I think is definitely worth a mention, is a company called Kogo. And Kogo used open banking to carbon score your spending and let you offset it. Mm-hmm. So if you spent four pounds at McDonald's, you know it would guess that that's X kilos of, of carbon and give you several options to offset it. And actually, in the end, NatWest formed a partnership with them. This is a classic use case where actually now, the carbon's offsetter is available within that West app, and you don't really have any idea it's Kogo. That's sort of what you're seeing is, ironically, th- those who have had success in innovative, exciting use cases have sort of been pulled back into the ecosystem and been offered because it, you know they still got the scale overnight. They had access to eight million NatWest customers. What the number is? Yeah. So yes. So I think certainly all banking apps have had to, even the banks themselves have had to reorganise and rethink how they deliver technology to retail consumers who probably had had very little churn in the past um, because the options were very limited.
1: That's great. So tell me about about the genesis for this idea and realizing that you could use open banking to view people's financial information and to develop a profile that could be used to opt into advertising. where's the genesis of the idea for you?
0: Sure. So actually, it was several threads came together very neatly in quite a tight timescale. The first of which is I spent a lot of money, relatively speaking, on uh, a company called Patch Plants. (laughs) And Patch Plants deliver Plants to your house, (laughs) and they have quite a nice way to go about it. All the plants have got you know human names, and they come with little booklets about how to look after them. And I felt very positive about the relationship I felt I had with Patch Plants until, for the three, maybe four months following that purchase, there wasn't a website or a social feed that I was on that didn't have Patch Plants all over it. Right, and I really took note of my sentiment towards them where well, i thought go away pat flance i'm a customer why don't you know better right mm-hmm. you know, with the amount of data that we provide to the web you just assume and maybe this is you know where, where it all starts to sort of click into place actually it's not that
1: smart the interesting thing is that i think it is possible for companies to untarget you once they decide to do it yeah but It seems like nobody does that. And it's like, I've just bought a stove. Why am I seeing stoves all over the place? (laughs) I'm not going to buy another one.
0: Yeah. Uh, Again, I think it comes from the underlying infrastructure, which is basically this concept of cookies, right? Which is we accept on every single website before we can do anything with it. And you probably got a number of unchecked out stoves across the web. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's not locking onto the fact you've got one checked out stove but of course we're connected to the bank account and so when we see that transaction we see the counterparties we know for a fact that that person has made that transaction with that vendor and therefore you probably need to change the message right so mm-hmm. and that goes from you know daily purchases right through to the the, the massive heavy items of, you know we can see when people started a car leasing agreement well you know, if you want to get them to think about considering your brand of vehicle in two or three years or three or four years, there's probably a journey that you should take that person on. But then again, once they've made the purchase, don't keep hassling them. So that, that's the first thing is that if you saw my bank account, because I, I sorry, I worked with an open banking innovation, I guess that's pretty mm-hmm. important. So I was <laughs> acutely aware of how the data could be shared and, 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 and um, analyzed. So That's the first point. And then pretty much at the same time, Netflix brought out this documentary, The Social Dilemma, you know, really putting across that these social media applications were basically designed, maybe it's not a surprise, but pretty much as gambling apps, right? Mm -hmm. They're exceptionally addictive. And the reason they're addictive is because the longer you spend on them, the more advertising they can slide into your now i think one in every four posts and now that we've moved on to short form sort of video content this infinite scroll we're all on these apps for hours a day but the only way they generate revenue is through advertising and the only way they get advertising is by you spending more time and it sort of didn't sit too well with me, especially after we had the Euro championship in football or soccer here. And there was a ton of uh, racist abuse that went out to players across social media. Lots of brands and advertisers started pulling away from, from it for a very short period of time to, to express their protest. But I realized then that actually there is no alternative, right? If you want to attract attention, you have to fund social media or Google. And that's kind of it. Those are your options as a brand or an advertiser. And the former being social media is really not a very healthy place to spend time. Sure, some good comes out of it, but I, I would argue that the bad that comes out of it far outweighs any of the good that's come from social media, certainly in the last five years or so, I believe. It's at the center of some major divisions in our communities. Um, but it's all funded through advertising revenue. So that was the second point, is that there really is no alternative. And why should Mark Zuckerberg be the beneficiary of my attention, my data, my value, whilst putting absolutely no effort in changing or being an arbiter of the content? You know, they keep their hands up saying, hey, we're not a publisher. If that content's there, it's there. And, you know, whatever. it becomes a very complicated argument very quickly around free speech and all of this sort of stuff. But ultimately, there's a ton of really nasty stuff. And then we had a family friend specifically who really put herself in a lot of danger, a young girl. And that was a very real impact of human life close to us that was all driven from what she was able to access with alarming ease via Instagram. So those sort of threads all came together. And then the more I sort of, it's one of those things, right? Once you see a yellow car, you're looking out for a yellow car, you keep seeing them. But... I don't think I was proactively looking out for it too much, but it seemed that every day almost, there was a new news story in the front pages of the papers where Facebook was in some sort of trouble. And they obviously materialized last year with the Facebook leaks and everything we've been just discussing now, they've known about, they know about it, they're choosing not to make a difference. So we had a really powerful motivation to try and bring about a different mechanism for this $400 billion industry to operate. And rather than exploit our data, exploit our mental well-being, exploit our communities and everything else that in order to drive advertising revenue, maybe the advertiser could have a more direct relationship, a fairer, more transparent relationship with the consumer with whom they want a dialogue. And I think it's been the biggest learning curve for us is that brands and advertisers feel weird about paying consumers to pay attention. (laughs) But we're saying we think it's weirder that you pay Google and Facebook to track these people all over the web and interrupt them everywhere they don't want to be spoken to. Why not just pay them to have a fair, transparent dialogue? I know you have money. I know you spend it with my competitors or in my market. I want your attention, and this is what I have to, you know, to tell you. There we go. So that was the, the sort of the kernel, uh, the genesis.
1: I can totally see why advertisers are scared. Is not the right word. Just you know, it's just they've never had a relationship where they're paying the consumer directly for any kind of advertising <laughs> that they do, uh, whether it be TV historically or now. So there's always an intermediary. Yeah. And the idea of paying people directly is not only different, but in some ways I can imagine people view it as like crude. Like it's one thing if it's going through an intermediary and you're paying them and, and advertising is being run, but it's another to just pay someone to pay attention to you.
0: Yeah, but I think th- this is the point about the open banking. I completely agree with you. Right? If, if you're paying somebody based on their cookies, <laughs> or any of the other data that you know, first party data or third party data, that's abstracted several layers from that pair of eyeballs uh, that you know, has a tendency to buy x on y time horizon, that's never been possible before. And so you know, through your television, It's scale. You're paying the the broadcaster because they've got 3 million people watching Coronation Street on a, you know, I don't know, whatever event. But it's always based on these tiny, tiny fractions of engagement. And that's always been the way it is. So you need the intermediary for scale. But I think what we've, I'm hoping, you know, which I've literally bet my house on, (laughs) you know, that's one (laughs) change. I've sold my house since we spoke to do this. all those marketplaces are completely saturated and they're not getting less busy. They're getting more busy. And so, okay, TikTok's appeared, but the medium through which video content is provided to the consumer, you're lucky to get a quarter of a second, half a second with that person. And so you're right. But what is now the alternative to actually getting a minute, a minute, and a half, two minutes with somebody where they're not skipping, they're not going past, you know, they're a real person. Right? You know they're human. All of our consumers have to have a bank account, they have to have transactions, and they have to have an income in order to be valuable and receive any adverts in, into their feed. So it's just never been possible before. The scale play, the intermediary, was it was always sort of, I think, accepted, and it still is today, there's going to be a bunch of fraud, right? I think there's like 15 cents in every dollar spent online digitally for advertising is lost. (laughs) I think it's a $100 billion problem by next year. So I guess the point I'm making is the intermediaries historically to today have existed because you need to reach millions of eyeballs in order to get a very low interaction rate. With our model, we're able to target thousands of people and achieve a 19.6% average click-through rate even after a minute and a half worth of content because they're engaged, and they're not, you're not interrupting them. So we think it's a relatively elegant model for what is a saturated, noisy world, where eventually also the, the very mechanism by which they do track and target you is going to be replaced at some stage by, by Google and Chrome.
1: When starting a new project, we understand that you want to make the right choices in technology, features, and investment, but that you don't have all year to do extended research. In just a few weeks, ThoughtBot's discovery sprints deliver a user-centered product journey, a clickable prototype or proof of concept, and key market insights from focused user research. We'll help you to identify the primary user flow, decide which framework should be used to bring it to life, and set a firm estimate on future development efforts. Maximize impact and minimize risk with a validated roadmap for your new product. Get started at tbot.io slash Sprint. You have this idea. It's really challenging the status quo. You're working in open banking innovation at the time. What did you start to do then to try to bring your idea to life?
0: So the first thing was actually, I, <laughs> my background's in sales and business development, so but within the fintech. An open banking space. So I've worked with a lot of very smart people, and the first thing I really need to do was quickly validate (laughs) whether or not this is if this is something. So a guy that we brought on—he's not so much a co-founder, but my the other director of the business is a guy called Matt McBride, um, who's this global head of UX at a, a company I used to work for. And that was really the first thing is to try and rapidly prototype what the experience would look like and ultimately go out to our target audience, which was Gen Z here in the UK, and ask them whether or not this is the sort of thing they'd engage with. And the responses were actually really very positive. You're going to hang on, you're going to pay me to watch ads that are relevant to me? No brainer, please do. And then we are able to raise 100 grand, I think 150 grand, which enabled us to take that prototype and, and build it into something that, after a few obstacles with Apple and the App Store, we were able to get live so that was really the, the first thing i guess is figuring out the way and the people that i needed to help me out to take this idea into something tangible and then tested it before i went much further with it i was very fortunate or i am very fortunate that my partner is a corporate lawyer my wife sorry now we've, we've been married since we started But um, And so actually the mechanism through which we're able to raise the really earliest funds meant that we didn't have to give very much of the business away at such an early stage, which I think was was a key learning point that I certainly share with other founders is, you know, you don't have to go give away 25% of your business for a little bit of money just to get it off PowerPoint. There are other ways.
1: So I think I remember what I told you when we met and talked. Do you remember what it was? You
0: shared a lot of
1: very valuable insights with me. My memory is that at the time it was only advertisements in the app. And I think I said, like, I get that people are going to want to be paid to look at these things. But if there's nothing else here, it's going to be really hard to bring people back to do that. And we had seen that in another client of ours that was paying people to browse And what they do is they do it for a while and they'd hit whatever monthly cap of return that they could get an amount that they thought made sense. And then they would switch back to their other browser because it was a better browsing experience. So they were only using it because they were getting paid. And as soon as that incentive went away, they would stop using it.
0: Yeah. So I remember that and you were right. (laughs) And I guess there's, there's a lot, there's a few things that came about from that. So the first thing is that Apple agreed so we couldn't get the app onto the app store if it was mm-hmm. just a feed of adverts that remunerated the user to watch them uh, incentivize the user so we put quite a lot of additional features uh, i guess more traditional fintech features open banking features within the application in order to give the user insights into their spending on you know week on week analysis and categorization of spend and we also built this what we call the level up section, where you every week you get refreshed pieces of content around, you know, very Gen Z focused again, but what's the difference between uh, a credit card and a loan? Is buy now, pay later a good idea? Uh, what's open banking? So we built, we, we generate all this content, which they don't get paid to consume, but is there and, and, and they do. But more importantly, I think what we realized is that actually what we've got, mm-hmm. this is the difference, I guess, between the attention exchange and Zedosh being the app, it's, it's the plumbing and the matching that is the real value here is the models we're building that understands people's behavior and propensity or intent to buy something based on the data they're sharing with us. And so actually what we've built is a solution where you should be able to log in to any publisher that has the additional content and experience and, and value that you're speaking about there, places you ordinarily already browse and frequent. But if you want to, there's a separate tab where there are ads waiting for you that remunerate you. But you you go into that tab. So we're trying to remove the interruption, the you know the pop up, the even having to accept cookies from a, your user experience for the publisher, moving it to a separate dedicated tab. And the reason the consumer is still going to go click on that tab is because they know that there's some content there that's relevant and, and pays them. But they're still able to enjoy all the other benefits that the publisher provides. So it's kind of weirdly trying to flip this right. premium subscription model where where you pay not to have ads. Actually, you're the first recipient of the ad income and you share that with the publisher.
1: I think this is really cool. And, and yet it, I think it also rubs up against or hits up against something that is just so different than the status quo. The idea that companies would not interrupt you with advertising is probably so foreign to people that I imagine you get reluctance to that
0: the last two years have been a steeper learning curve for us and all the advertisers and agencies and players we've been speaking to but what I'm grateful for is the fact that this what we're terming the ad apocalypse is coming And so I was just at an event called Madfest last week, which is basically all the advertising industry got together in in London, the UK advertising industry. And every single panel discussion, talk was about the post-cookie era. And all that most people are speaking about is how do we gather more data in other ways from the consumer in order to keep doing more of the same? And all of a sudden, when we're talking about the fact that our users give us their Banking transactions, we see how much they earn and where they spend it, and therefore can also attribute without the use of cookies, which is the holy grail of advertising. We started generating an awful lot of interest from really big players. So I think you're right. It's been the status quo is having its the rug pulled from underneath them, right? Look at Meta's share price this year. I didn't haven't checked it this week, but you know, last time I checked it, it was down 52%. And that's because iOS app tracking transparency. Is stopping the ability to track and monitor and you know increasingly ultimately the ability to, for the user to remain more private. And they all are doing it. Why would they want to be less private in order to benefit Meta? Where in an ARM platform, they're opting into being, you know, their most intimate data being shared because they stand to reward, rewarded fairly for it. So I completely agree. Up to this point, what? No way. You know, this is how it works. And certainly the thing that will probably remain true is to do more with less isn't of interest, because agencies get paid a percentage of the budget. They don't wanna do (laughs) the same with less budget. But my point remains that with iOS app tracking transparency, apparently Android's going the same way and Chrome replacing third-party cookies, the status quo simply cannot continue. Something new has to change. And so I think with this identity solution, ultimately, is what we're building. The consumer stands a chance of being the first in line to receive reward for their attention and i'm very pleased actually we've actually got some competition as well since we last spoke which is new but this concept of rewarding consumers for attention i think we well, just how else are you going to get their time like they're not listening to you on tiktok <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm happy to hear that you're viewing competition as as a positive thing and i agree I, competition raises awareness that this is a thing and a potential, and most people will, will shop around or research it further, and that's a chance for them to discover you.
0: I hope so. This company have done a big advertising campaign all over. It's on TV, radio, and the underground in London. And the amount of people who've reached out to me, they're, well, is this company doing what you're doing? And ultimately, they're paying users, in a way, uh, for their attention to advertising, but they don't use open
1: banking, and they don't have the data that we have. That's an important distinction. One of the things that I've seen our clients worry about, and I saw it happen to one, even though lots of people worry about it, I've only ever seen it happen one time, but it's still a risk. And that is when competitors come along and unbeknownst to you, they dramatically over-raise and therefore are just able to flood the market, saturate the attention and build way bigger and faster at a loss than you are willing to do. Yeah. Uh, or able to do. <laughs> or able to do, right. Because they've raised, you know, 500 million or something like that. That's what happened with one, with, with our client who was in the group buying space at the same time as Groupon and Living Social. And so that's the only time I've ever seen it happen, but it's something that people are worried about. How, how are you? Is that something on your mind?
0: It's interesting so they've raised 15 million uh as a series a and they've been around since 2012 so they've been around a long time and it almost feels like they la- <laughs> i'm not saying they did but it almost feels like they landed <laughs> on linkedin and when we're very anti-social media the message is really strong on anti-social media um, but ultimately they built an app and so i think we've already matured past the point that in terms of our scaling and our ability to integrate with any platform our strategy already goes beyond competing on a direct basis of an app that serves ads in fact if anything at some stage i'm hoping you know that we could they could plug into our engine and our pipes and add an extra layer of data and personalization to the adverts that they serve ultimately yeah when they came uh, and i it was it was uh, during a, the champions league final that they had their first big launch because one of the backers is a football player my phone just went berserk. It's like, wait, what? Is... <laughs> and at first, I was a bit worried, but ultimately, no. Uh, it's it's. I only really, really see it as a positive at this stage. But obviously, yes, they can advertise. They can speak to brands. They've got m- you know much more market presence everywhere you go on the underground. There are those posters, but we have a very clear, distinct proposition that is quite different. As I said, you know, really, this this, this p- pulling apart what ZOSH is and what the attention exchange is. The attention exchange is really potentially the plumbing, the rails for this post-cookie advertising model.
1: So that being said, you are doing some fundraising now, that's right? Yes. In fact, I
0: don't think I've stopped fundraising (laughs) since (laughs) this started. And certainly that wasn't something I was anticipating, despite the fact that I mentioned earlier, I married a a corporate lawyer. She told me, your role as a CEO, founder, you're just going to be fundraising. I thought yeah well you know i'll get some money in and then we can focus on doing the stuff but every time money comes in you know but most often you sort of already spent it right it's it's allocated it's gone you need to look for the next the next lot so but yes we are fundraising we're currently we're still focused majoritively on angels we're looking to prove our scalability model with this existing raise at which point i think we'll be ready and, and looking for institutional funds but we use something called eis funding which is UK specific, but is so, so rewarding for UK taxpayers. Okay. I mean, basically they get 30% back off the tax man off their tax return, which is a great incentive and all the gains from the equity that they, is capital is free of capital gains tax as well. So it almost becomes a no brainer for people who have, you know, money that they're looking to invest in early stage risky businesses they're only really risking the capital risk is, is under 50% what they put in because there's also there's an insurance element to if the company goes bust that you have invested in this sort of something
1: called loss relief. So it's it's really attractive to angel investor level investors.
0: Correct. Yeah. So you have to be a, a, a UK taxpayer as an individual to benefit from this specific relief. Of course, I mean, we have had some non-UK people still invest through the same uh, It's an advanced subscription agreement. But yes, it's very attractive for UK de
1: and do you think you <laughs> that you've already sort of answered this question but I guess when do you think you'll stop fundraising
0: we're looking to change the way the internet works <laughs> right <laughs> <Ta-da>! <laughs> and so if we're mildly successful even redistributing the uh, the 100 billion of ad fraud which is currently um, being lost out there we could we're entering a very Cash-rich market looking for solutions at this moment in time. So, if we were to raise some cash that enable us to put in place the plumbing and the pipes that we're looking to connect to, then actually we should be relatively profitable, relatively quickly. At which point, I guess we'd no longer need to fundraise. But at which point, we'd probably say, "Well, actually, the US is now ready for this. Let's." <laughs> so, we're not. I don't think we're particularly a, a cash-thirsty business, right? It's all built on AWS. It's all
1: and you're right. That's why I sort of why I asked the question, because if your model is working, if you're having the impact you want, there's a lot of money in an advertising. Yeah. And so you you should get to the point where you're able to do that profitably. Absolutely. And start being as big as Google is, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I, I read a book called Life
0: After Google. I don't know if I, I shared that with you last time we met. But it's weird. It, it's sort of it, it was written five or six years ago. But it's coming true. I think this whole premise of Web3 and this decentralization of data and the ownership of data, the profiting of data, at the individual level is coming to the fore. And I can think of no better way to bridge your value and identity online than having it connected to your real world assets, income, and spending behavior.
1: I was wondering whether you were going to mention Web3. <laughs> because it really, you know, this decentralization of the advertising money directly to users is a very Web3 idea. I agree. <laughs> so how much do you talk about Web3 in sort of your pitch or when, you, when you're talking about it? It hasn't come up until now, until this conversation. So maybe not so much. It's, an inter- it's a double-edged
0: sword, I feel. Because I think most people think Web3, they think crypto. Yes. And we're paying cash in fiat. And although there's every possibility we could have a token-based solution, we're not looking at that because the core immutable value of your attention is LinkedIn, your spending behavior on earth and online, but through real transactions with real merchants. I like data, you know, 99.999% of transactions I imagine aren't crypto yet and don't live on a blockchain so until that point i think we've steered clear of it whether we could have raised more money more quickly if we <laughs> <established it> more, <laughs> i don't know but for me there's quite a few steps to go in in our journey as i see it you know having matured from the app to the plumbing the plumbing now going to more publishers more publishers meaning more audience more audience meaning more attention more advertising at which point you know as I said, the US will probably have, have be there with open banking. There's a lot of things in Web 2 that could be resolved. And yeah, we if we make it that far, for sure, we have, I think, we'd be in an awesome position to have a, an identity solution for Web 3 or Web 5. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Well, I wish you all the best in that journey and I really appreciate you stopping by and sharing with us. My pleasure.
0: No, it's been real great and uh, nice to nice to hear from you again and I hope our paths cross in the in the real world soon soon
1: enough. Yeah. If folks want to get in touch or learn more or get in touch with you, where are all the different places that they can do that?
0: We have two two websites. So, zosh.com uh is the consumer app. Attentionexchange.co.uk is our other Website. Um, otherwise, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn and on Twitter. I'm G underscore Zedosh. I'm not massive on Twitter. A lot of bots on there, you see.
1: <laughs> I'm. I guess I'm not that surprised. So you can subscribe to the show. Find links to everything that was just mentioned, along with notes and a complete transcript for this episode at GiantRobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at GiantRobots.fm. And you can find me on Twitter at CPytel. I'm also not very active these days. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Mandy Moore. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. ThoughtBot is your expert design and development partner. Let's make your product and team a success.